Good afternoon, Storehouse. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be in Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 19, and it says, And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you did not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Such an encouraging text this afternoon. Um, I just want to be super duper clear. Uh, we didn't know that it would fall on like Kid Sunday. So uh, if you didn't hear the text, you know, about dung, well, I mean, what better way to learn about it than at church? So we're going to do our best. Nevertheless, if you did not catch LC, we're going to find ourselves in Malachi chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 9. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It's five chapters, or excuse me, four chapters and about 55 verses long, so it shouldn't be too difficult to find. As you open or load your Bible, uh, just two quick updates or reminders. The first one is, if you're not connected to a community group, let me just invite you, encourage you to join one. Visit our website and you'll learn more about our CG leaders, where they meet, when they meet, and hopefully something will suit you. And while you are on the website, we also have a discipleship guide that we wrote for this series. And so I would encourage you to download that. Uh, included in the discipleship guide is a section for family worship. So parents, you get to do some stuff with your kids in light of Malachi. I'm really looking forward to what your discussion would be like this week, given the text. And on top of that, uh, it's uh, questions for study and group study. So I hope that you would find that encouraging because we want you to grow as disciples of Jesus. Let's, let's just dig in to our time. Time because that's what we do here. Okay, here we go. For a moment, uh, just for a moment, I want you to think back with me to your teachers, teachers that you've had in the past. Could you, could you remember any of the good ones? Just think for a second. What about, what about the bad ones or the more challenging teachers that you had throughout your time? I already see people nodding like, oh yeah, I know exactly that is, I'm sure they stand out a little bit more. I can remember two of my favorite teachers growing up. The first one, his name was Mr. Trevino, and he was my high school English teacher, and he was always encouraging us and pressing us, not just to write, but to write well, not just to read books, but to argue with the authors. He was like the Hispanic John Keating from the Dead Poet Society. If you've never seen that movie, you're missing out. And then there was Mr. Rogers. 
I loved Mr. Rogers. In fact, to this day, I will cry, and you can ask my wife, I will cry if I stumble across his farewell message in 2003 when he was, like, done with TV. I learned so much from Mr. Rogers because I learned English from Mr. Rogers. But then I can remember some of the bad teachers, like Mrs. Robinson, who was about to retire, and she had so much tenure that her motto was, fire me, I'm going to retire anyway. She was very mean, she was strict, and we're talking about dung, so I might as well tell you, she used to walk by the desks and pass gas, and then the kids would be like, Mrs. Robinson, and she'd be like, it's natural, like, ups, like offended that somebody said something. Teachers are memorable, and they're very influential. Today, among our teachers and educators, we have access to tons of teachers and instruction that discernment is required. Well, the same could be said about Israel in the days of Malachi. Israel had some teachers who were called priests, and their instruction was memorable. It was both memorable and influential negatively. These men held certain responsibilities toward the people of God, yet over time, their hearts had begun to grow apathetic and detached from the Lord. Consequently, this was the entire condition of Israel. If you're new, we're in this short series through the book of Malachi, where the book is structured with six disputes. And it's structured out this way, where God presents an accusation to Israel. Israel then responds to that accusation with challenge. And then God responds once more by showing Israel proof of his accusation. Today, God continues to address Israel's teachers because they had abandoned the truth with apathy. Teachers are memorable and influential. Therefore, discernment is imperative. What we're going to see is that apathetic hearts suppress the truth of God, while affectionate hearts sustain the truth of God. Once more, apathetic hearts suppress the truth of God while affectionate hearts sustain the truth of God. Let me pray and we will dig into our text. God, we begin with ongoing and continued praise. We thank you for the gathering, allowing us to come together and sing songs by elevating your name uh, so that our hearts would be stirred to be pointed to your character. God, we thank you for all that you have done and are doing, particularly what you have done for us in Jesus. This afternoon, would you give us grace to listen? Would you give us grace in conviction? Lord, you tell us to ask for wisdom, and so we're asking for wisdom. Would you give us wisdom this afternoon? Even in texts such as this that are challenging, may your word be sweeter than the taste of honey. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's begin with the truth abandoned. This is the first verse of chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins with the Lord coming back to address the priests. If you remember uh, from last week, though God began to address the priest, his dispute really encompassed all of Israel. But here, he's looking at no one else. He's looking specifically at the priests. And so let's look at verse 1. He goes on to say, And now, O priests, this command is for you. 
This short verse is important because we need to understand the context of what's going on back in the days of Malachi and how it applies to us today. So, briefly, or I'll try to be brief, uh, we're going to look at the priesthood, we're going to look at the pastorate, and then we're going to look at the priesthood of all believers. There wasn't any other way I could shorten that. So, let's look at the priesthood first. If you're unfamiliar with the priesthood, throughout the Old Testament, God chose men to fulfill this office or role of a priest. They, they served as mediators between God and the people of God. Last week, we learned that part of their job was in leading the people through worship in the sacrificial system. That is, the people were supposed to bring an unblemished animal, and the priest would then sacrifice it to God uh, as an offering, but also as a foreshadowing of what Christ would ultimately do for sinners on the cross. This was instruction that was given to them, and it was plain as day. We looked at Deuteronomy 15 that says, if, if it, that is any animal, if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. The priest had specific instructions about what to receive from the people in order to sacrifice it. Well, all of that to say, here in chapter 2, we learn of another part of their job, and that is to teach and preach God's word to the people of God. But something has gone wrong. Not just with the people, which is what we've been kind of hammering over the last couple of weeks, but with the priests. So I'm going to leave you in suspense for a little bit, right? So that's the priesthood. That's who God is addressing here. Today, now we're going to look at the pastorate. Today, there is no priesthood. There is no office of priesthood where there's this individual chosen by God to serve as a priest in this kind of capacities. There are some distinctions to be made. The New Testament doesn't have the office of priest. Jesus fulfilled that office with his work on the cross, the most similar office would be that of a pastor, especially when we're looking at uh, what they did, and that is preaching, teaching, praying. That would be the role of the pastor. So there would be some similarities in there. <clears throat> you would ask, maybe you did, maybe you come from this background, you would ask, well, what about Roman Catholics? They have priests. Yes, they do have priests. They have the office of priests that is still alive today that serve in similar capacity to what we see in the Old Testament, you know, being individuals who do the sacraments or lead the church through sacraments, mediator between people, and we would highly disagree with them. Right? We would disagree with them. We believe that this office has been fulfilled through the work of Jesus. So that's the pastorate. There are some similarities between pastors and priests, not sacrifices. We don't do that, so don't bring goats. That's not cool. We don't do that, uh, but there are some similarities as far as preaching and teaching. This is now where you come in. The New Testament, although it doesn't mention an office of priest, the New Testament does mention that we are all part of the priesthood of believers, meaning that Christians, you and I, are no longer dependent upon the priests within the church as a means of approaching God through Scripture and prayer. Through Jesus, all and any Christian can approach God because of Jesus' work for them. For instance, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race. Here it is, comma, a royal priesthood. He's talking to Christians. 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's not saying only the priests are going to proclaim the, the excellencies of Christ. No, he's talking to the Christians. So we're part of the priesthood of believers. They're, they're, uh, we don't need to go to a priest in order to approach God. We can approach God because of Jesus' work for us. Additionally to the Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, we, Christians, the church, we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through you. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, in short, as the priesthood of all believers, or as the priesthood of believers, because you have access to God through his word, because you have access to God through prayer, because you have access to God because of Jesus' work, you need to know that this passage is incredibly important for you. It's incredibly important for you because you need to know what to look for in church leadership. You need to know how to hold church leadership accountable. And most practically, if that's not practical enough, you must know your Bible so that you can examine yourself honestly and grow in your faith and maturity. Because when it comes to the priesthood, whether we're looking at the office from the Old Testament or a body of believers, the priesthood is meant to point people to Jesus. That's it. It is meant to point people to Jesus. So that was my take on verse 1 of chapter 2. Let's dig in to everything else. We're actually going to begin in verse 4 and work our way through verse 9, similar to what we did last week. We're going to kind of jump down and then back up to the middle. And so what's happening here is that the priests have abandoned the truth when apathy. Therefore, all of these priests have grown apathetic. So in verses 4 through 9, we're going to see this breakdown of context. We're going to see what they were supposed to be doing, what they were actually doing, and then the consequences of their actions. Let's look at verse 4. Let's read it quickly. <clears throat> God through Malachi says this, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Here it is. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instructions from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. All right, let's look at what they were supposed to be doing, because God is angry, God is rebuking them, God is addressing the priests. What was it that they were supposed to be doing? In verses 4 through 7, we see that God talks about the covenant of Levi. This is God's covenant with the tribe of Levi, where the priesthood started. So he's kind of taking them back to the beginning to remind them of what he's charged them with, the purpose of the priesthood, to bring life and peace to the people. When you read the word peace here, it's the Hebrew word for shalom. But it's not just peace as far as like there's no war. It means healthy. It means whole. It means sound that that's what they were supposed to be walking in, that's what they were supposed to be teaching the people. 
And so in verses 5 through 7, I'll break it down into three things. Character, conduct, and finally competency. God says that this priesthood feared him. That they were in awe of him. In other words, these were individuals that were supposed to be men of godly character. Who they were was shaped on what God had done for them. Who they were was shaped on who God is. If you go back to verse 5. Verse 5, my covenant is with one uh, of life and peace. And I gave him to him. It was a covenant of fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. That these priests, their character was one where they stood in awe of God. That they revered him. That they feared him. That they worshipped him. That who they were was shaped on who God is. That's who they were supposed to be. These are the kind of men that God called. And then their conduct, continuing. Verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was on his lips. He walked in peace and uprightness. <clears throat> and many he turned for iniquity. That their conduct was measured because of who they were. That they walked with conviction. That the word of God not only flowed from their mouth, but they walked it. They walked the walk. They didn't just talk it. In their speech, the way they walked, in their character, what they preached, who they pointed people to, because they themselves were living this out. And then finally we come to their competency. This is verse 7. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. That their job, so we looked at their character, we looked at the way they lived their lives, and their job was to guard knowledge, to give themselves to the people, that they were called messengers of God, that they led the people of God in worship. They guarded the temple. They preached the truth and repentance. They led the people in sacrifices. This is what they were supposed to be doing. They were supposed to protect God's word. They were supposed to protect the people of God. They were supposed to protect what God had entrusted them with. They were men who were supposed to point the people of God to the character and beauty of God. That's who they were supposed to be. But that's not what they were doing. Here's what they were doing. Verse 8, you have turned aside from the way. You have corrupted the covenant. And so I make you despised and abased before the people. You show partiality in your instruction. So outwardly they looked godly like they knew what they were doing, but inwardly they had strayed far from God. That's what he means when he says they've turned away. That they brought reproach and corruption to the covenant. That they showed partiality. That if you were rich and powerful, you got a pass. If you were poor and powerless, you are going to live by a different set of rules. They showed partiality. Their hearts were growing apathetic. Let's look at their consequences. Back to verse 8. You have turned aside by the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. Their life and their instruction caused others to sin. 
If you remember last week, the people of God were bringing this unsacrificial sacrifice, right? Something that didn't cost them. And the priests weren't rebuking them. The priests weren't rejecting them. In fact, the priests were accepting them. So rather than protecting the people, instructing the people, rebuking the people, rather than holding fast to the instruction they received from the Lord, they're receiving worthless sacrifice. They weren't instructing the people. And the people were in sin. The priests let them do that because they themselves were living in sin. There was no repentance that was being preached. They no longer feared God. It wasn't just that their attitude was apathetic. Their actions had become ungodly. Listen, the role of a priest carries a message. It is one of adoration or one of apathy. Let's look to verses 2 and 3, the verses everybody wants to get to. How does God then respond? All right, kids, here we go. Verse 2. If you will not listen. In other words, this isn't something, their apathy wasn't something that just happened overnight. It grew steadily and over time. It wasn't as though this is the first time God is calling them to account. It's not like this is the first time God is giving them a chance to repent. So he says, if you will not listen. He's talking to the priests. If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you don't lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. Here it is. And spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. God responds with three things. Because these priests aren't protecting the word, they're not protecting the people, they're not honoring the Lord, they don't fear the Lord, they've grown apathetic, they've grown indifferent, they've grown distant. God says, I'm going to bring a curse to you. In other words, everything that you have, all the blessings that you've received, will be cursed. What does that mean? It means everything that you have is going to be affected, it's going to be impacted. The work that you do is going to be done in vain. It's going to be very laborious. God is going to frustrate the fundamental purpose of their ministry. You think it's hard, it's going to be harder. You want to see fruit, there probably won't be. Your labor will be in vain. That's the first thing. And then he says that he's going to rebuke their offspring. This could imply that God's rebuke, this could imply that God's curse is going to affect their children and future generations. But the word offspring here is the word for seed. And it could imply that God's judgment is going to threaten their livelihood. How they make a living, how they support their family. And if that's not intense enough, he says that he will spread dung. And if you're like, what's the Hebrew word? It's exactly what it means. Waste, feces, poop. Yeah. Let me give you the picture. If you're like, no, I'm okay. You need to know the picture. Here it is. When the priests would sacrifice the animals, afterward they would take their hind legs, they would take the head, they would take their intestines and their waist, they would take them out of the temple, and they would chunk them on the outside of the city. They don't want any of that stuff because it's unclean, dirty, and nasty. They don't want any of that stuff in the temple. So they would take all that out, uh, shovel it out, dump it out in the cities, right? Away from everybody. 
When you read that word dung, right, it's meant to do exactly what it says. Like, man, that's gross. Exactly. Right? Oftentimes, when you read scripture, you're going to come across some pretty intense imagery. And the idea behind that imagery is to give you a picture of what God really means about something. Right? It's meant to heighten your imagination or your creativity. So here, it's not that it's literal. It's not like God's going to come down and just wipe it on their eyes. Okay? It's not what it is. It's not literal. It's metaphorical. It's pretty much this. As bad as that sounds to you, this is what God is saying. As bad as that sounds to you is your instruction to me. That's how I hear your instruction. Therefore, I will throw you out into the city gates. I will throw you out. You know where you throw all that waste after the sacrifice? That's where I'm going to throw you. I will remove you from this office unless you repent. That's what he's telling the priests. It's a call from God to repent of their sin, to repent of their apathy. And even with such harsh and strong language, it's still a measure of God's kindness to extend repentance to these priests who are leading these people astray and are themselves astray. God gives them the opportunity to repent. So why does this matter to you? That was a pretty fast exegesis, right? We looked at who the priests were. We looked at what was going on, what they were supposed to be doing, what they were actually doing the consequences of their sin, and then God's response. Why does this matter to you? It matters to you, as we come back to the pastorate, it matters to you because you need to know the role of a pastor. See, the same kind of things that we see God talk about the priests, of their character, of their conduct, of their competency, is the exact same thing that we could say of the pastorate. When it comes to a pastor's character, we see that in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, that this must be a man who is above reproach, sober-minded, hospitable, that he manages his own household well, that he holds fast to the mystery of their faith. That when it comes to a man who serves in the pastorate, that his conduct, his life preaches a sermon about Jesus, that it is consistent with this godly characteristics. It doesn't mean that he is perfect, but that he is repentant. His life preaches a sermon, and that Jesus ought to be what is broadcasted. That he is shaped by who God is and what God has done for him in Jesus. That this individual needs to have some kind of competency. This is on the notes, but listen to Paul to Titus. He says, he, this pastor, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine. So he needs to know the word, he needs to be able to teach the word, and then Paul says, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That the pastor is ready to go toe-to-toe to push back the darkness, but also to correct when it comes to God's word. You need to know the role of a pastor. And it's always awkward in a text like this because I'm telling you my job description. But you need to know that. That's my job description. It's one of the only job descriptions where The primary qualification is character. 
So you need to know the role of a pastor. You need to know what to look for and what to do. Because check it out. You ready? Just because a Bible is open and there's a cross at the front of the church doesn't mean that Christ is preached from the pulpit. I'm sure there are more, but I'm going to give you three. None of this is on the notes. I'm sorry. Anyway, I'm going to give you three kinds of pastors or teachers, Bible teachers. The first two I stole from a commentary because I thought it was just very creative. The first one is called a flaretic. It's like Ric Flair, flair, and then heretic, put it together. Here it is. Flaretics. These are pastors who are all flash and absolutely no substance. They tell you about God without the word of God. There is no conviction, only production. They tell everybody that God loves everybody with ever actually addressing things like sin and hell and judgment and tough topics. There are very good churches in the valley. And then there are some that we would push back on. There are some who are very prevalent in the valley. In the valley, there is a big movement with the word of faith. Name it and claim it. You want this, you're going to do it, you're going to claim it, and God's going to give it to you. Says who? And then there's prosperity teaching. You know, if you just have enough faith and if you just give enough, if you plant that seed, then God will love you. Then God's going to give you wealth and health and prosperity. God doesn't want you to be a victim. He wants you to be a victor. <laughs> anyway, seriously. There's another kind of theology that's really prevalent in the valley. Maybe you know it. Maybe you don't. It's called deliverance theology. Deliverance theology will teach that the, the, the work of Jesus on the cross is insufficient. That the reason you still struggle being a sinner, even though you know Jesus, is because there's a demon inside of you. I don't know what Bible they're reading. Maybe they're looking at first opinions, but that's not in Scripture. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he says, it is finished. The work by which we are reconciled to God has been complete. The reason you still struggle with sin is because you're still a sinner fighting for God's grace in your life to continue to transform to his will. Then you got orthocrites. Orthodox hypocrites. In other words, on the outside, they're very godly. On the inside, they've gone astray. These are like the kind of priests that we're reading about in Malachi 2. And then you got godly, biblical pastors. Men who are imperfect, but repentant. Imperfect, but repentant. Men who are as gentle as they can be, like Jesus, but who also have grit in the midst of of everything. Here's what Ian Dugan says. Many preachers are naturally of gentle temperament. But as sinners, we desperately need pastors who, in their preaching or counseling, are willing to make us uncomfortable with hard words. Such confrontation is often contrary to our people-pleasing instincts. I think a good, godly pastor who is imperfect is going to preach repentance to you 
is going to address your sin and tell you that it is sin. That would be a mark. So with that being said, godly pastors are imperfect, but they're, bibli- or, but they're repentant. Therefore, here's what I would tell you. It sounds weird, right? Because again, I'm talking about me to agree. Pray for your pastor. Yeah, I'm asking. Yes, pray for me, right? Pray. Because I love your prayers. Because like the things that the priests were doing, it's not like they're not temptations in the pastorate. You think pastors aren't tempted to cut corners, to not study as long? You think pastors are not tempted to cut corners in any way when it comes to the preaching of God's word? Or to even preach it at all together. See, one of the reasons I love personally preaching through books of the Bible is because we have to address hard passages like this. I have to preach to you about dung just like a couple of weeks ago I was preaching about election. Preaching books of the Bible forces us to address challenging topics. I've told you a lot about Charles Spurgeon. Love Charlie Spurgeon. He's my favorite. And so there's this story. If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, he was a preacher from the 19th century, and he's preaching in London, and he has a church. It's called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he's given people a tour of the church. He's like, this is the sanctuary. This is where we make coffee and whatever else they had. And at some point at the end of the tour, he tells this group of people, he says, hey, uh, I want to take you to the boiler room, which is like the creepiest thing to say because I'm sure they freaked out. And And he insists, and he says, no, 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 I really want to take you to the boiler room. Trust me. So this group of people go with Charles. They go to the boiler room. He opens up the door, right? And there's in there, there's a small group of people praying. They were awkward, right? Like the people were seeing other people praying. And so one individual asks, Mr. Spurgeon, what's your success in ministry? And he walks into the boiler room and he says, my people pray for me. Here's what he says. Lord, Help us who cannot preach to pray for the man who does. Have you, dear friend, who cannot preach, made a point of praying for the pastor of the church to which you belong? It is a great sin on the part of the church member if they do not daily sustain their pastor by their prayers. I would totally covet your prayers. Well, at the same time, I would ask you, Hey, pray for more pastors to step in. See, everybody wants biblicism, but once there's responsibility, hmm. Hmm. But I get it. It's a weighty office. James 3, here's what he says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I'm not going to, I get it. It's really hard. That's a really weighty word. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, hey, uh, your leaders are going to give an account to God one day for the people entrusted to them. And for the people entrusted to them. I get it. But I would just say, I'd cover your prayers. He's like you, man, I'm a wretched sinner. And I fall short of the glory of God daily. I don't want what happened to Israel. So, Know the role of a pastor. Know what to do. Know what to pray. Because you are part of the priesthood. Which means you need to know your Bible. You need to know your Bible so that you hold leadership, me, anyone else, in, uh, so you hold leadership accountable. You need to know your Bible because of you have spiritual responsibility. 
You need to know that God takes his word seriously. I think we can get that from Malachi 2. God takes his word seriously. The question is, do you take God's word seriously? See, some of you take yourself way too seriously, and you need to ease up a little bit and take God's word as serious as you take yourself. Some of you want to be or are Bible teachers. Some of you are CG leaders, you're worship leaders, you're Bible teachers, you serve in women's ministry, kids' ministry. You need to know your Bible. Parents, husbands, fathers, you're here, you're telling your family that you want to be here because the Word of God is being preached. That means it's on you, your spiritual leadership. The way in which you uh, disciple your children when you point them to God, it's on you. You need to know your Bible. See, many of you speak of the will of God, but you're absent in the word of God. Apathy isn't just an emotion. It's a condition. And you didn't get there overnight. Duguid writes, As the priesthood of all believers, we are called in our everyday lives to know God's word, to let it permeate deeply our conversations with others, and to live it out. As the priesthood of believers, you have a biblical responsibility to your leadership, to your families, to yourselves in the word of God. Listen, teachers are memorable, they are influential, whether it's negative or positive. Yet even among the best, like Mr. Rogers or John Keating, stands one who is greater, and that's the Lord Jesus. See, while the weight of this, what we looked at with Malachi 2, while the weight of this for the priests or pastors today or even the people of God is heavy, and it is, God didn't leave you to yourself to figure it out because our God is a good God. He's a gracious God. He's an affectionate God. You see, though these messengers, like these priests, though these messengers of the Lord were dropping the ball, just like in every section of Malachi, we get a hint of the coming Messiah, and we see it here. Here's what he says. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge. The people should seek instruction from his word, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. When these messengers were lacking, God sent the one messenger who would be the sufficient high priest. You see, God enters into human history as the man Jesus Christ, who is not only the messenger of the Lord, but is himself the Lord. As Jesus dwelled and lived among us, he taught the truth about God and his words brought life and peace, leading many to repentance. He taught with authority and reverence, not simply because he was a better teacher, but is himself the lawgiver. Jesus is the high priest who brings an end to the priesthood because he fulfills the purpose of its work. 
Jesus was never partial. He was utterly and brutally honest with the wealthy and influential while still being gentle, lowly, and gracious to the repentant and the outcast. And if that's not enough, Jesus lifts us from the curse of futility and death by becoming a curse in our place on the cross, enduring the judgment that was meant for us. Jesus was removed from the temple and he was treated like the dung of sacrifices taken outside the city gates to a place of shame and ridicule and publicly executed on a cross as a curse in our place. And yet still, death could not hold him. Jesus resurrected three days later and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And as our great high priest, he continues to teach us through the word and work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is because of Jesus that our apathy can be turned toward affection by looking to him. See, our apathy always begins with ourselves, always. And we interpret everything around us and in us through the lens of our apathy rather than first looking to Jesus so that we would find clarity and comfort in the midst of us. Listen, Christian, if you find yourself like these priests in a place of apathy, it didn't happen overnight. It was a slow, gradual process of turning away from God, turning away from the truth of God and even the people of God. So what should you do? By grace, turn to Jesus today. Repent of your sin and apathy. It'll be slow, fine, but turn to Jesus today. And if you're not a Christian, Here's the truth. If you're not a Christian, you are separated and estranged from God. You are not a friend of God. You are an enemy of God. You are not cool with God. You are at war with God. You don't stand as morally superior. You stand before God condemned. But God has made a way for you to come and know him. And that is through the Lord Jesus who pardons all sinners who turn to him in faith and repentance. That is the God of the Bible. So church, just be reminded, apathetic hearts suppress the truth of God while affectionate hearts are sustained by the truth of God. Let's pray. Father, sanctify us this afternoon by the truth of your word. 
your word is not only our source for truth, but the necessary nourishment of our souls. It is by no coincidence that Jesus is also called the bread of life. The very words of Christ bring life to our dry bones. Father, may we be those who drink deeply from the fountain of your word so that we would be like a tree planted, rooted, and fruitful. Holy Spirit, help us to meditate deeply on your word and instruction. Not simply so that we would be knowledgeable, but blessed. Keep us from pride and arrogance and thinking that we've arrived. Keep us from despair where we feel as though we don't know enough. Lord, we are known by you. Therefore, give us grace so that we would fall in love with you more, that we would fall in love with your word, and so that we would guard our hearts from apathy with affection and adoration. Lord, for those whose hearts have been invaded by apathy, your grace is greater than their sin and their apathy. Restore them. Restore them with the kindness of your grace today.